in what Christ says, what Christ says to various people who came his path during his earthly ministry. And we come today to the centurion, and therefore um, what Christ says to the top dog, because he, of course, was a man who had authority over his, 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 um, his soldiers. Uh, so what Christ says to the top dog. So before we uh, consider God's word further, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, please, we pray, speak to us through your word this morning as we reflect on this encounter of the centurion with the power of the Messiah. And please help us as we think through this whole issue of the authority that Jesus brings. Amen. What is your experience of authority? For some of us, we have maybe many positive experiences of authority, of being brought up by uh, loving, balanced parents and working for caring bosses. But for others, the question will evoke painful memories of authority, authority being exercised abusively, at the ne- neglect or abuse at the hands of parents or the scars of working under a tyrant. In our series uh, of people that Jesus encountered, we come today to the centurion. Uh, He was a man who recognized in Jesus a pure form of authority. And the centurion liked what he saw, and he willingly submitted himself and his sick servant to Jesus' authority. And for us today, it's going to ask various questions. It's going to raise various questions. Firstly, how will we respond to Jesus' pure authority? And we'll think about that in terms of salvation, but also then, once we're Christian people, obedience to Jesus' authority. And we'll particularly dig down a bit and think about how we then exercise the authority that Jesus delegates to each of us. For pretty well all of us will have some form of authority over others. In somebody's life, you could say that we are the top dog. So, uh, let's go back to the centurion 2,000 years ago, and let's enter his world. The centurion looked earnestly at the doctor. And the centurion knew before he said a word that the situation was serious. He had seen plenty of men die in the course of his army career. And now he saw in his servant's eyes that same familiar haunting acknowledgement Death was not far away. And yet he cared for his servant, like he cared for the hundred men under his command. His battalion had the most profound respect for him, and he in turn treated them as if they were family. And he grieved deeply when any of his men fell in battle. And now he would grieve in turn deeply again if his servant were to be also taken from him. And yet, he did not despair. He had a gist of a plan slowly forming in his mind, although he could see a major problem with it. Over the years, he had developed a deepening respect for the Jewish people and for their God. Their God, he had noticed, was both powerful but also personable. Just, but also loving. 
and it made a stark contrast to the multitude of capricious fickle deities that his fellow Roman countrymen worshipped. But now there was a Jew who was performing many miraculous healings, and it was clear that at the very least he was an emissary of the Jewish God. This man exercised a power and authority that could only be from God. This man had restored sight to those who had been blind from birth. This man had enabled people who hadn't walked for many years to leap to their feet and to saunter off. And it wasn't as if they just hobbled off and dragged themselves away. They instantly had better muscle tone than the most dedicated regulars at the gym. And now, this previous week, this man had healed a leper with a word and a touch. It was unprecedented. Never before had such a thing been seen or heard of. And so the centurion concluded, it was to this man to whom he should go. He had no doubt that this Jew had the power to help him and his servant. But there was a problem. This man was a Jew, and he wasn't. He was a Gentile. And of course, Jews generally wanted to have as little contact as possible with Gentiles. The Jewish law said that if a Jew even entered the house of a Gentile, they were ritually defiled. And the centurion had also noticed a pattern. As he thumbed through the pile of newspaper cuttings, he had collected concerning all the miracles that Jesus had performed. Headlines, Jewish blind man blessed with 20-20 vision. Jewish ex-cripple runs Jerusalem half marathon. A Jewish mute woman now sings for her supper. The ecstatic, joyous faces of the healed that smile back at him from those front-page photos were all Jewish, every last one of them. Would this Jew, Jesus, be sympathetic if he, a Gentile, approached him? And even if he was sympathetic, would he be willing to use his great power for the benefit of a Gentile? Despite his uh, apprehensions, he was driven on by his concern and his love for his servant. And he decided today was going to be the day. He had noticed on Twitter only that morning that Jesus was now in the area. And so he set out, and it wasn't hard to find Jesus. Like going with the rush hour traffic, he found you just had to follow the flow of people. He gently but firmly pushed his way through the crowd until he was within a few feet of Jesus. Amidst all the commotion and the heaving crowd that surrounded Jesus, Jesus looked him straight in the eye. It was almost as if he had been expecting him. And now was his opportunity. It was now or never. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. His heart rate was beating fast. The words he heard in response were simple, but full of confident authority. I will go and heal him. 
Yet the centurion still felt the weight of the dilemma hanging in the air. Here was this powerful emissary of the Jewish God, a man of incredible authority and importance. He hardly felt worthy even to have him come under the roof of his house. It was all too much. Yet he had mulled on this dilemma long and hard, and his own experience as a commander in the army pointed him towards the solution. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servants will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion knew that the word of powerful people gets things done. What they say goes. Their authority gives their word great weight and great influence. And he saw it every day in his line of work. He issued orders, and they were obeyed. Yet he could see that the authority that he had as a centurion in the Roman eye was nothing compared to the authority of this man, Jesus. Jesus evidently carried the authority which was from a far greater source, the God of the universe. He knew that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to physically come to his house. His word carried great power. All Jesus had to do was to say the word and his servant would be healed. Now, the people who followed Jesus around were quite familiar by now with the sounds of gasps of amazement from the crowd. But this time, they were startled by the gasp of marvel that they heard, and it was from Jesus. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Go, it will be done, just as you believed it would. The centurion looked at his watch, and he later checked with the other servants in his household. And yes, they confirmed it was at that exact time that the sick servant had been completely and instantly restored to full health. He had never felt better. The centurion was proven to be spot on. Jesus does have great power. He has great authority, the authority of God himself. What Jesus says goes. It happens. He can be absolutely depended on. Now, there is no doubt that some of the words that Jesus uttered that day would have stunned both the Gentile centurion and many of the Jews in the surrounding crowd. Uh, Jesus started by commending the faith of the Gentile centurion. Again, chapter 8, verse 10, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. But he didn't leave it there, because he then went on to reveal the staggering future implications of that Gentile's faith. Uh, you see, in the Old Testament, 
uh, God had promised a future day of great rejoicing and celebration for His people. Of course, this is what we now know as the day of Jesus' return, His second coming. This is the day, of course, of God's judgment. It's the day when Jesus will finally finish the job. He will exercise His authority to finally purge all evil and all suffering from His creation. And the joy and the celebration of God's people on that day as they enter the renewed creation was likened to that of a party, a great feast. And yet the Jews believed that it would be their names that appeared on the party guest list and that the Gentiles would be shut out. But here is the shock in Jesus' words. Chapter 8, verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. In other words, from beyond the borders of Israel. That is, Gentiles, just like the centurion. And will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. How do you think the listening Jews felt about that? They were shocked. But what followed next would have left many of them on the floor. Verse 12. But the subjects of the kingdom, in other words, the Jews, the chosen people, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, Jesus promised a future day which will be a delight for some, but darkest despair for others. What determines who is in the party and who is out? It's not determined by race, whether you're an ethnic Jew, but by faith in the Christ, the Messiah. And the centurion is one of these people from the east and the west who recognizes Jesus' divine authority for what it is, and he submits to it in faith. So, as we consider the relevance of this uh, for us today, we're going to explore two strands of application uh, using this paradigm of Christ's authority. Firstly, we're going to think about it in the sense of submitting to Christ's authority for salvation, and then secondly, our submission to Christ's authority in obedience as Christian people. And we're going to particularly dig down a little bit towards the end, towards thinking about that in relation to how we exercise the authority which Christ delegates to each of us. So, uh, firstly, our submission to Christ's authority for salvation. Every miracle that Jesus performed was an exercise of his pure divine authority. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus actually was a man who operated himself within an authority structure. You see, Jesus' authority was delegated to him by God the Father and mediated to him through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see this authority structure in various places. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 8, is one of them. Uh, there, Jesus says this, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. 
He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Uh, Fast forward to Gethsemane, and there we see Jesus on his knees as he contemplates going to the cross. And yet, what does he say? Not my will, Father, but yours. He submits himself to the will and the authority of the Father. And Jesus, therefore, when he walked this uh, earth, was using his authority, delegated to him by the Father, for good, to do the work of God's Messiah in the world, uh, to restore and to heal, to restore and to heal people scarred and marred by sin. And each miracle that Jesus performs is like a little micro-example of what he will do cosmically the day when he returns. And at the very heart of that healing authority was Jesus' authority to forgive sins. And Mark, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has just informed a paralytic that his sins are forgiven. Uh, the religious leaders of his day are present and they are not happy. Uh, they know that forgiving sins is the prerogative of God alone. And they say, who is this man? He's a blasphemer. How dare he say such a thing? So what does Jesus do? He endorses his authority to forgive sins with the physical healing of the man. And Matthew 9, verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, go home. And of course he does. And of course, Jesus' authority to forgive sins, it can't just be words. We know, don't we? For God's moral integrity to be preserved, somebody has to pay the penalty for sin. And as we know, the road of Jesus' earthly life leads him ultimately to the cross. And that is where his authority to forgive sins is underwritten. It's also where we most clearly see a startling and sparkling characteristic of his authority. Service and self-sacrifice. It's not a self-serving authority, but an others-loving authority. And Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see? Jesus' authority has this beautiful mesmerizing blend of power and humility. On the one hand, he is the king over all, and yet he comes to serve all, ultimately with the sacrifice of his life. He is the servant king. And salvation comes to all who submit to his authority to forgive sins now. And that submission is an act of faith. Through asking Jesus to forgive our sins now, we place ourselves under the protective shield of his authority. 
And that preserves us in the face of God's end-time judgment. And of course, that is the challenge to each and every person. Have you submitted yet to that saving authority of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? But we don't leave it there. Because not only is our response to Jesus' authority the starting point for our salvation, but then thereafter, we continue to respond to that authority every day in terms of Christ's lordship over our lives. You see, every day, if we're Christians, each one of us is confronted with choices, uh, choices whether we will submit or not to Jesus' authority to rule our lives. So we're moving the lens now from the issue of salvation to obedience. And there are occasions on and not when we know what God's Word requires of us, and yet we struggle to obey. Maybe the consequences of obedience are costly or difficult. And yet the issue remains the same. It's one of trusting Jesus' good authority over us. The questions we then are faced with in those situations in our everyday lives are these. Will I trust that Christ's way is best, even when it's not what I would prefer? Will I submit to Christ's authority in this area of my life now? And of course, we know what Satan says to each of us in those situations. It's the same lie that Adam and Eve swallowed in the garden. Does God really love you? Does God really have your best interests at heart? But we know, of course, don't we? Can we trust in Jesus' authority? Is it a good authority to which we can joyfully submit, even when it's difficult? And the answer is yes, it is. And that encourages us, even when we can't see maybe why we should, to still submit to it. And the question then is, will Jesus say to us, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone of such great faith in Cherrybrook or Blacktown. How it warms our Lord's heart when in those day-to-day situations we exercise faith, even when we can't see how it will do as good in that particular instance, but we keep trusting Him and keep obeying our Lord in faith. And we can explore this strand of application a little further and dig a little deeper because obedience to Jesus' authority plays out in how also we exercise the authority He delegates to us. You see, the point is this, and I'm sure you've recognized this, authority structures are all around us. Uh, Divinely ordained authority structures, they are everywhere, and we are each of us part of them. Think about the centurion. He had an authority over his soldiers and his servants. He was the top dog to them. They were the people who came under his authority and care. Now, each of us, um, we have a starting point in life. We are born, and as a child, we don't really have any authority. But as we get older, Gradually and in different ways, authority is bestowed upon us. Uh, Think about the different scenarios. Uh, Parent to a child. Husband to a wife. Uh, 
those who hold positions of authority in the church. For example, uh, elders, uh, members of the committee of management, those who lead services, those who teach in kids' church, those who teach in scriptures in the schools. Uh, also going to go to the situation of our workplace. Many of us hold positions of authority in our workplace. And so, for Christians... The question is this, how will we exercise that authority which God has entrusted to us under God? Will we be like Jesus in the way we exercise that authority? Will we be servant kings and servant queens? Will our authority be characterized by service and self-sacrifice? Will it be others orientated rather than self serving? Uh, you may recall in Matthew 20, uh, it's the situation there where two of the disciples are sort of jockeying for, jockeying for position of authority in the kingdom. Uh, they're convinced, of course, Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to inaugurate this amazing kingdom, but they want the best seats in the house. And so uh, they actually dispatch their mums to try and uh, put the hard word on Jesus, uh, to try and see if they, the mums can secure positions for the two of them at Jesus' right and left hand in his kingdom. They want the best jobs with all the power. So, Jesus calls them together and he has something to say to them in response. And what he says reveals the true nature of Christian authority and how it should be exercised. Matthew 20, verse 25. Uh, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you pick up on the just as? It's a very important just as there because there's a link. Just as Jesus' authority was a self-sacrificial, others-loving service of others, so also our authority exercised as Christians should be the same sort of authority. And therefore, this same servant king or servant queen authority principle is interwoven into the authority structures in everyday life. And we see it popping up in numerous places in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 5 and 6 is just riddled with them. Uh, firstly, uh, husbands over wives. Ephesians uh, 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, parents over children. Fathers, and I'd say mothers. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Employer over employee. 6 verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. You see, in somebody's life, in all likelihood, you are the top dog. And therefore, you have authority 
over them in some form. And the question is, under God, will you be a servant king or a servant queen? And then two other questions flow out of that. Where we fail in those roles, will we be quick to repent, to acknowledge to those under our authority that we've blown it and we need their forgiveness? And parents, I know as a parent myself, there are many ways in which I fail to exercise that loving authority over my kids. I need to say them sorry. I blew it in that instance. Where we fail others, will we be quick to repent? And finally, will we forgive those who have been in positions of authority over us and yet who have failed us? Because in different ways, I'm sure all of us have suffered at the hands of those who have not exercised their authority over us in a loving and caring way. And maybe to this day, we still carry deep scars from those experiences. And yet, the way out of those situations is not to harbor bitterness, but ultimately to forgive. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for that pure, beautiful, mesmerizingly startling and sparkling authority which Jesus himself so perfectly embodied. The servant king authority which came not to serve himself or to have others serve him, but to serve us through that greatest of sacrifices. We pray that many in our world, in our community, would see the wonder of that authority and what it can do for them personally when they submit to it for the forgiveness of their sins. And we pray also that that authority would impact our hearts and lives ever more deeply as Christian people, that we would willingly trust it and submit to it in our daily lives in obedience, and that we would also live it out, particularly in this realm of the authority we exercise over others which you have delegated to us. Help us to be faithful stewards of that authority and to live out that servant king and servant queen principle wherever you have called us to do that. We ask this all in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.